Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And this is Storymakers Show. And today on Storymakers, we've got another fascinating question. The question is, I've heard a lot of conflicting information on the question of where to start a book. And if I start with the exciting later years, how do I include details from a subject's earlier years without slowing down the action and losing the reader's interest? All right. I like this question. I think that actually people grapple a lot with how to tell a story. And I guess the funny thing is, I think intuitively a lot of us know how to tell a story. Right? I mean, you you said when we first came across this question, you said, well, you said you thought exciting was the key word here. So yeah. why don't you talk about that a little bit? Well, I think that if you know that one section is more interesting than another, then um, really what you might be asking is, what does my reader need to know to really get the full meaning of these events? Which is a very different thing than, do I need to show? Or, the, or worse, how do I show right. what I may not need to show? Yes. So I think, you know, if you are drawn to a section of your story in a particular way, it has action and excitement for you. But, um, you know, and so those kinds of things should be a clear indicator. Well, and I think what happens is so with with nonfiction, I think it can get confusing how to pull out the parts that are a story without fictionalizing it, right? So people feel like, well, I have to include all of this stuff because it happened or because it's sort of connected to this other stuff, but actually it's not the story, right? It's not the the meaning generating fascinating part of it. And I think with fiction, something similar happens where we we do a lot of work imagining our characters and getting to know them, and some of that work doesn't belong in the book. Right. Well, I, I you know, I've just watched uh, uh, some stuff on editing for film, and it's actually really directed towards uh, documentary. Hmm. And I think it's true for whether you're constructing fiction or whether you're constructing a story from nonfiction. The idea is that you're going through and you have a whole bunch of material and you're actually pulling out the things that aren't the story. So that's mm. really a big part of it. It's the story is already there, but you need to pull it out rather than, um, uh, you know, doing sort of like, here's all the information you need. It's like, well, really, if you were to do the least amount possible, and I think we should always work with our lazy side, <laughs> if you were to do the least amount possible and not overstress about what your reader needs to know to understand, I think that would be a better draft to start with than all the information the reader needs. Unfortunately, I think it isn't our, la- it isn't our lazy self who can give us that very uh, pithy version because we are carving away, right? It's the David, like finding the David in the marble. So in a way, the lazy person says, look, here's a square of marble and you can imagine the David in it. Plus you get to see all this other fabulous marble that the David came out of, which is just more information, but it's actually... In a way that it's a it's less information, right? A block of marble. Um, we have a we have a desperate dog in the background that. Um, so I'm going to pause for a second. Okay, so the dog's outside. We're back here with David, the block of marble. The witch is lazier to leave the David in the block of marble or to carve it out. I, I actually totally hear that, and I think if you thought, okay. Never mind my reader. 
these are the three scenes I think tell the entire story. Right. Right. Or, but I think sometimes in the energy of telling a story, let's say you come home and something's just happened during drop off or whatever, you, you're going to tell me whatever you're going to tell me. And sometimes like you'll, they'll even just be a pronoun and I'll be like, wait, who are you talking about? Or you'll be like, you remember that? And I'll be like, no. So that's like, there's this kind of, there is this need to know basis. Right. And but then at the same that, time, yeah. we've all been with that person who's like, I'm going to tell you this story. But what I'm going to do is stop the story four times to tell you about the thing you need to know. And all that happens is that you just don't care about the story anymore at the end of that. You think I'm that person? A little bit. We'll save that for our therapy <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I think that I am somebody who sees a lot of connection and context. And that's interesting to me. And so I sometimes will kind of feel interrupted by all of that connectivity yeah 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 um i think i feel interrupted by it too (laughs) (laughs) so anyway ultimately i think like with regard to the question about where to start a book and um kind of how you make those decisions the other thing i actually really want to emphasize is that you know we keep saying this in our book in a year class you actually don't know until you've finished a draft, how you need to edit the beginning. And so if you spend, you know, months getting the perfect beginning, you actually are wasting your time because the end is going to tell you what the beginning needs to be. And, and do you agree with the idea that, that, that it's sort of a mirror that like the, the sort of folded on the midpoint, the book becomes kind of a reflection of itself? Well, I think that we've talked about that. I've, I've been seeing a lot lately about the idea of symmetry in um, storytelling. And, you know, there's a lot of things that I think are true. I think, oh, boy. My dog just got a lot of wet paw on me. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> our dog's name is Bandit, by the way. Okay, so. I feel like we're, he's, do you he's feel the model of, like, what is important or not important to this story. And he's become, like, he's, he's become, like, a subplot here. Mm-hmm. And somehow he's going to end up being, tying into this theme. Yes. Where do we begin? Where do we begin? See, his whole first three years minimum, because they told us he was three, but we He's think, probably seven. Yeah. <laughs> are lost to us. And yet, from a lot of his neuroses, we we have guesses, strong guesses about his past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and his future. Yes. So, okay. So, um, anyway. So, I think that that's one thing that if I were to give anyone advice about where things start or where they, mm. um, you know, what's the best way to get the book rolling, I would actually say the least amount of information that you can do it with and don't worry about that until you've finished. Those would be my main thing. Start at your end and then you'll know. You know, these are really the pieces that the reader would need to know to get the most out of this reading experience. I think what's interesting about your saying that is that you are, you have adopted at least a planning approach, right? So you are an outliner or you, you create a step list, you do the seven steps, then you do a, then you do a detailed mm-hmm. list of each scene or each right. step. Um, and just to say that, but but you always emphasize that this is an exploration. Mm-hmm. And um, I kept I kept bringing up, and I brought it up in the podcast. I know even that you know Lauren Groff 
throws away a draft. And I listened to some more interviews with her and she actually talks about how the draft might be on index cards or it might be a big sheet of butcher paper with lots and lots of notes on it. So it turns out that what she's sort of throwing away is on some level a planning draft, Mm -hmm. right? So I just think it's interesting to note that you you do planning at this high level, at this next level, and that you even then consider the first draft that is that is following or veering away from that plan to itself again be another discovery draft. So it's right. not actually that you're like, instead of doing a discovery draft, do a plan. You're like, do a discovery brainstorm, do a discovery plan, do a next discovery draft, right? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I view that planning. Having been forced out of my, I mean, it was almost like I was left-handed and they forced me to be right-handed. Um, that, and I am left-handed and I still write with my left hand, so there you go. But you like throw a ball with your... I throw a ball with my right hand. But anyway, the thing that I was sort of wanted to say is like even going through that process, coming out of it um, and marrying it with, and I know we've talked about this before, about those... Uh, different brain states of being both uh, focused and diffuse and that they can't happen at the same time. But if you don't do focused work, it's really hard for that diffuse part of your brain to come up with really interesting approaches, ideas, connections. Whereas if you stay in focused mode, you never make those leaps. So you have to be able to feed your your mind so that it can be a functioning um, and productive diffuse mode. It's interesting because, you know, they're doing all these studies about psychedelics and having like therapists who guide people through psychedelic experiences and it's like therapy for people who are dying and for people who have PTSD and it's right they're having all the I mean there's articles in the New Yorker perhaps I'll find one and put it in the show notes um and um and it just makes me think of that that there's a way in which the planning part is like that therapist who's going to be there like not making all these incredible connections, but holding the space in which that can happen in a sort of safe and secure way. Right, right. Because you, yeah. there's some places you just don't really want diffuse mode. Like diffuse mode is not good for, say, driving quickly to the hospital. <laughs> and, um, you know, they have their roles. They each have a really important part. And I think they have an important part in creativity. Yeah. And, and a lot of that... Um, stuff that, that I've been reading, a book, uh, Stealing Fire, sort of talks about how you get out of that logical space. But mm-hmm. I think if you don't feed the logical space, you end up with that you know weirdo friend that used to be cool in high school <laughs> and now is really someone you're not sure you want to invite over for dinner. So No one in particular. Yes. Um, but I want to say, too, that... Um, this, this sort of on the on the more minutiae logistical question of like how do you fill in that that backstory when it is needed and as it is needed and just I, I, mean, I want to get to that but I want to I think it's connected to this question of diffuse mode because again I think there are two approaches and one you can approach it kind of logically and say okay here's where the question comes up or I'm going to jump here but now I want to create uh, a jump like where the where this section ends with a question that mm-hmm. points us to that backstory and makes us want desperately to know that piece that we're going to jump back to so there are some kind of logistical uh, focus techniques you can use but then also there's there's that intuitive sense of like when is this when is it time to bring up 
this piece. So I'm just saying you can use both modes to kind of to kind of figure out how to structure the story, how to put it once you've written your draft, your discovery draft, mm-hmm. how to put it together. And, and I'm um, thinking of something my wonderful friend Dorothy Hurst says, which is she says it to me often, which is you know you're not looking for the right answer that's out there somewhere for your for how to structure your book, you get to choose, right? So you're looking for one that feels exciting mm-hmm. and feels right and does what you want it to do, but it's not like it's not like there's a single answer and you're just trying to find that well, single answer. And it, you know, that actually puts me in mind again of my editing class inside the edit. Um, one of the things that film he talks editing. about, yeah, it's about film editing, but one of the things that the instructor talks about is there are there is a wrong answer, <laughs> but there might be multiple right answers, right? So, so what's, what makes it a wrong? Tell us a wrong answer. What makes something a wrong answer? Well, that was just a pithy quote. And so um, I'm it's sorry. Great my one. little dog needs some hugs. So I would say that like a wrong answer would be something that doesn't hold your audience's attention. A right answer is you can do that in a number of ways, and what's the story, right? So, um, you know, it's that notion of you if you gave someone, and I think this is really interesting, like if, if you gave someone a story and you cut it up sentence by sentence, and then you let them organize it, right, and you didn't give them a framework, what would be the story that people put together, right, from from those pieces. And even if you did it at sort of a higher level, like paragraph by paragraph mm-hmm. or scene by scene, and and you just let people, 10 people come together and put those in the order they would, you would have variations, right? And the story's meaning would change based yeah. on that. But um, it doesn't mean those those variations are wrong. Right, right. And then, then it's just, does it work? And, and then it's, you know, does it work for your people? So I was just listening to Tony Rock, who probably doesn't want to be introduced as Chris Rock's brother, but that's one of the things he is. He's also a comedian. But, um, and he was saying, you never, um, you're never doing a show for the whole room. Like you're never trying to win the whole room and, or maybe you're trying, but you're never going to win the whole room and you're just going to win the people on your wavelength. And I just thought that's so important to remember. Like, so it has to be right for you and it has to be right for your readers. And it's never going to be right for everybody. Yeah. And that's the sort of thing we try to teach our children, right? (laughs) (laughs) It has to be right for us. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, So, yeah. So I think... But the other half of the question you started to address this was really about, okay, so if I'm going to cut off this chunk of information and focus on those exciting years, how do we integrate that information that we think our readers need. Right. Well, and so one thing is what I was talking about with our dog, just to weave him back in, is that we don't know and we will never know those first three to seven years of his life, but they are displayed strongly in his character and in his behavior. Mm -hmm. So we can make lots of guesses about him based on those things. So one of the ways you're going to bring it through is the character that anybody who's take acting in the exciting later years is, you know, is an amalgam of those early years and those experiences. And also just to say like, so it's, and I, and I love your focus on it being about the character. Um, so it's not just the character's actions, but thinking about how does the character see the world they're moving through, because that's actually reflecting also their worldview. Yeah. So that every piece of what you're working on 
if you are staying close to that character, is going to reflect those different things. And then there'll be moments where you can use some of that backstory, not as you need to know this in, under, in order to understand the story, but as revelation, mm. as, as something that continues to move your reader's investment forward. And also, it's often going to be because it comes up for the character in that, so mm. in the moment, in the present, moving forward, something comes up um, that reminds them of the past or best maybe that lets them reevaluate the past to understand the past differently, differently right and so that's um, that's For example a... bandit never did fetch yeah and now he can look back on those years as sad and um, he can look back on those years as sad lonesome ball free years where before he thought he was complete okay that's just that's just unnecessarily uh depressing oh that's okay we're just this is going to be our dog dog podcast our dog yes, and you can hear the little sound effects of him too so um okay so i think we've kind of delved into this topic do you I, think we answered the question about how to integrate those things I mean, I think we didn't give every possible answer, and I've done classes on jumps. I, I mentioned briefly the, that kind of idea of, you know, when it comes up for your character or in your story, to to allow it to consciously be raised as a question in the reader's mind or in the in the flow of the narrative, so that when you jump to it, we want it, right? Mm-hmm. We are we need to so know. So the idea actually is don't fear a lack of information, like unless you're getting deep feedback, like I don't. I needed to understand this aspect, then don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's incredibly hard to do, right? But to understand that sometimes we're writing the backstory to understand our characters and we don't need to include it, Mm -hmm. and carving away, as you said, everything you don't need to include is powerful, it's very powerful, and it it ends up being in there, right? It's it's Hemingway's, Ice, what is that called? The thing the Titanic crashed into. Iceberg. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> wow. I know. That's a real middle-aged moment. <laughs> uh, but that most of it's underwater. And so the narrative is Can what? we just title this episode, That Thing the Tank Titanic <laughs> Crashed Into? See, that created a desire to know. Where The word iceberg in and of itself wasn't going to be that interesting. Mm-hmm. But the absence of it and the tension building up to it and the question, it created a little mini excitement. And I roll not in. just a, not just a little excitement. I was very curious about where that was going. <laughs> so, um, and the main thing about starting your book is, and I think this is, goes back to what you began with, is is start it wherever the heck you can. Keep moving forward, and you you just have to be willing to shuffle, willing to cut willing to add, um, but you're not ever going to be able to do any of that until you get it on the page. Yeah. And I I always like the idea, like, I don't even know if this is true, but I like to tell myself that if you retain one out of seven pages, that that's a really good ratio of production to final product. And um, for me, whether that's true or not, like that metaphor really helps me. It really helps me feel like uh, I'm not throwing away 
my work or things like that, I actually have to hit a certain volume before I get to, uh, you know, usable. And it's disrespectful. I mean, this is an art form. So, you know, you don't want to go hear somebody rehearse the piano, you know, and they never, ever play it except on stage. Right. I mean, if you're a guitar teacher to a 10 or 11 year old, you may only be hearing the <laughs> you may be hearing the, the non rehearsed guitar. But um but, you know, you, you don't like that. Yeah, it makes so much sense. And there was that there's that wonderful quote by I don't know whom about. Uh, I don't know what about. I think it's Picasso about how he created, you know, 100 masterpieces in his life or something, which, you know, think about 100 like Picasso's. Right. Like that's an incredible amount of you know brilliant masterpiece work. And. But he had, like, in his lifetime, he'd created, like, whatever it was. Th- it was it was like 30,000 or 80,000. It was, it was definitely at least 30,000. I'll have to find that. <laughs> That'll be in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it was just, like, so, so, so much more. More than seven times more. More than, you know, mm-hmm. 70 times more, right? Like, it was, you know, and that just, the idea that we have to sit down and write something that is publishable and engaging and all of those things right off the bat is absurd and it's and it's unfair mm-hmm. to our ourselves our creative selves and to our poor little readers <laughs> so it is time for steal this in steal this we talk about things we've come across that we so loved or felt excited by or challenged by that we want to take them and make them our own I will start. So I read uh, in the last this month, uh, uh, An American Marriage by Terry Jones. And um, I won't I'll, I won't I don't want to spoil anything, but I just want to talk about what she does at the ending, which is um, she twists and twists like the, it turns and turns and turns. And so you don't know what's going to happen. There's a big like love triangle. There's a whole sort of situation and how is it going to get resolved and um, it cannot get resolved satisfactorily for everybody and you're following all three characters so you care about everybody you see everybody's point of view you know nobody's like the the bad guy or wrong holy you know nobody's holy right and you're just so, so you're in this like the thick of it and you're trying to figure out what's you know what's going to happen right you're being pulled in what's going to happen and and it and it keeps going different it keeps turning right so you think okay oh it's oh it's going to be this and then it turns again and again and again and it's just and it, and each turn i think takes us deeper into into character and into the complexity of the situation and i actually have been thinking a lot that we read because um, we we, re, we we need story in order to help us deal with um, the fact that we have no idea what's going to happen, right? And how unexpected life is. Oh, how at any moment another dog can come walking by your window. And um, anyway. And- Welcome back from post-dog drama. <laughs> Number two. Uh, anyway, we're, we're just going to leave that in and and um, because I think it illustrates the point that you just can never know what's going to happen in life and you can't plan. And uh, But you could close your curtains. <laughs> okay, you could know. 
and part of that is if you learn. So yes. that's what. I re- so I think story is about characters learning oh. from their mistakes, growing, making different choices, um, and being able to start because we read stories to make guesses about what's going to happen. Although there, a lot of that is narrative suspicion, right? If we if we if we start here, we we're going to end here, right? right. Um, but anyway, so I um I anyway, but I think this is a great book, and I and I think it's a very um, kind of emotionally daring. So what are book. you stealing from it? So, um, you know, for some, for this future project that is, is, hasn't yet emerged, I think just, um, feeling my way into all of the possibilities. So I think, I think that's what it is. I mean, there, there'll, there'll be more to learn from this, right. But like getting into a situation where you can't get out like painting yourself into a corner a real dilemma that's one right yeah like a real dilemma where there's no win-win there's no win-win um even though i would say in the end 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 it it kind of pulled out a happy ending i'm not saying how though i think you know but it but because because anyway so no win-win win (laughs) possible um and yet each side so powerfully like justified and also like wrong at this, you know, both and letting the characters be that flawed and that full of like need. And I don't know. So just, there's just an incredible depth in it. And then letting that, and then just going into it, just keep going into it. It's so easy to just want to like whisk away. Like, do you feel like if I were to give you a steal this action, what of the things you said would be the sort of nugget? The nugget. Well, I guess the easiest one is the is the real deep dilemma. But I think there's something to learn from that, uh, from like sticking with that mm-hmm. and not jumping away from it. Um, that is the other piece I, I want to learn. I want to steal. But it's not as like laid out there like a jewel for me to pluck. It's more like well, a, I think what you're talking about, actually, it really is a great example of that. Um, focused and diffuse because the focused I do think that you could using focus tools really come up with a spectacularly challenging dilemma right and I think for an artist the interesting thing is not just coming up with that but really not having an answer to the dilemma at that moment yeah and that what you're talking about right now with the second half that really sitting with it uh, is one of the most challenging and courageous parts of artistic work, which is to sort of sit with those situations to fully respect and value your characters who are in this situation and really give them the depth they need to to not make it a simple, well, of course you would do this. Right. Yeah. And or or I want you to do this, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's my danger is okay, I want you to do this. And yeah, I think that's that's deep. Deep. Thank you, Terry Jones. Yes. And I think you're right that like the focus part feels easy. Not easy, but it's like, OK, I feel like, oh, I can think about the end of my last book probably has that kind of dilemma. But then it's like to be willing to really sit with it and really suffer with the characters through it until you get to a different place, whatever that looks like. Yeah, because you would have to love your characters equally and want them each to have as much a chance right. of getting their win 
But it's not that I do. I actually do feel that way about them. I think it's about the pain yeah. of sitting through that those those moments. But I'm saying if you've got a three way, yeah, and you love each of them equally, right. and you want each of them equally to get what they want, but they by definition can't. Yeah, that's definitely painful. But you have to like take that moment to love and push forward. And what would you yeah. do? And what would they do? Right. So, no, I yeah. th- I think, but I just think my last book that I finished, you know, whatever has that, and I. Just just think I it was too a little bit scary for me and I just went with what I wanted to have happen. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I think that um, for me, the steal this is um, you know, there are a lot of different creative processes that people have articulated. And I'm sort of interested at this moment, not on templates, but on sort of exterior workflows. So to my mind, things like, uh, you know, the design process, right? So you still end up with uh, a container that sort of guides you through the process. And at the same time, you're solving problems in a particular way. And I also realize, like, for me, one of the thing I one of the things I've been craving, craving for decades at this point <laughs> is a collaborative group of people to work with. And, you know, how thrilling and grateful I was doing production and for, for lost in the middle for lost in the middle but that honestly i need something like that more mm-hmm. i do i do a better job of my independent work when i'm in the context of a real community of creators and so uh i've just been thinking a lot about you know how could i use maybe that creativity process to manifest the the creative supports mm. that i need i like that all right um Thank you for listening. If you have questions, email us at questions at storymakershow.com and have a fabulous writing week. Bye.